everybody welcome back to the cabin my name is sean james and i'm the host of the my Alliance podcast and youtube channel in this episode which is number five or six i'm talking to pascal bowder who is an expert on wild foods and especially wild food um, preservation or food preservation so i found this really interesting the reason i reached out to him is we actually have four of his books about uh, wild food wild food uh, f- um, fermentation and preservation techniques and I would say he's one of the pioneers in uh, kind of revisiting these old techniques or making them more bringing them current and doing the research trying to figure out you know how things were done in the past but also what's the culinary and um, and health benefit of these tech old techniques so the so making alcohol out of wild foods for example uh, fermenting foods to make them more nutritious and also longer lasting uh, making alcohol and uh, uh, what else uh, canning all kinds of interesting techniques but really cool ingredients as well in fact pascal spent a year basically living off of wild foods <laughs> well he says it wasn't the most successful and he lost a lot of weight but he did learn a lot from that experience and uh, he would do things differently and he's confident now that he actually could live um, live completely off the land especially with his upcoming book and he'll talk about that um, grains uh, seeds and grains from the wild so i hope you enjoy this so let's get to it thank you for watching and i look forward to seeing you back here at the cabin again next time take care all right well it's nice to finally meet you nice to meet you too (laughs) there you go i've got four books of yours sitting in front of me here that my wife has bought over the last couple of years and wow okay yeah yeah it's been a, a bit of a passion of ours um, we're i would say we're kind of foodies but we've become more of a wild foodies over the last many years and trying to um trying to uh, become more self-reliant you'd look at things a little bit differently so rather than from a like a fine dining um, perspective we start looking at food as a as a survival um, right. tool first and then increasing the palatability and the health benefits so uh, that's what i think attracted to us and my wife to you first um, right. so i i guess let's start by if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and who you are, your name, and who you are, and where you are, and what your life's passion is. Okay, so name is Pascal Baudard, B-A-U-D-A-R. I'm originally from Belgium, so I'm a fake French, (laughs) but I still have the accent. Uh, And uh, so I'm basically, uh, what I do is I'm a forger, but I'm also fascinated by traditional food preservation technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's probably like 40 different techniques and methods that, that you can use for food preservation wow. aside from you know modern food preservation technique right. uh, and I'm fascinated too uh, by wild plants and what makes me a little bit different is uh, I'm really into applying traditional food preservation technique to wild plants right and when I say food preservation technique, it's not just you know canning or pickling or dehydrating, but I'm talking about making your own beer, making your own wine, making your own vinegars, making you know your own lacto ferment and all kind of different stuff like that. 
So, so being from Belgium, Belgium, when did you come to North America then? Like how, when did this um, hobby or passion or interest start? Uh, I, the first time I shopped in America was 1986, so a long time, mm-hmm. which is why I lost my French accent. <laughs> right. I thought you were from Montreal, actually, when I, when I heard you on another podcast. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I cannot, I cannot lose it. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, I showed up here in 1986. I went back to Belgium in 1992, and then I went back here again. Um, you know, at the time, my wife was American, and this is how I got in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still have a green card at this point. Okay. Yeah. So, so were you like, so what? What age? Eighty six. Not to, it's up to you whether the. I'm sixty two right now, so okay. I should. Uh, I don't know. Probably like. Uh, yeah, like twenty four, twenty five. Yeah. Okay. So, were you interested in wild foods when you were? Oh, at the time, I was a graphic artist and graphic designer. Okay. So my grandma is actually the one that teach me wild food when I was growing up in Belgium. Okay. And I was completely normal at the time. Like the the elder who knew at least you know forty or fifty different plants, seeds, grains, uh, nuts, hazelnut, walnuts, mushrooms. So they will know maybe like fifty of them. And this was really a survival strategy in the old days. Mm-hmm. People had to you know survive. World War II by eating a lot of wild food, for example, in Belgium. Hmm. Uh, but it was common knowledge. Everybody knew it. This this is completely lost now, but you know, it was something that would go from generation to generation and it was completely normal. There was no such a word called foraging. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. you have a garden, you raise your own rabbit and your own, you know, chicken. And when you go for a hike, you go pick up some stuff like dandelion, hazelnuts walnuts, whatever is available. Well, uh, it was completely normal. Yeah, so it would be shocking to come to North America, uh, like, I mean, I'm generalizing here, but to come to North America and find that tradition that's not being passed down. Like, I'm not much younger than you. I'm born in 70. Right. So I'm 53. And, um, you know, my grandmother didn't have any of these traditional skills or certainly didn't preserve them or pass them down. It was almost, I would say, well, much like modern transition is that people have kind of thought of that almost as an embarrassment if you had to live poorly and and to live off the land and to to you know to know all these skills so once uh, we started buying things from the grocery stores and didn't have to preserve and the refrigeration came along i mean i get my dad grew up down in cape britain nova scotia I was born there and they were quite poor so there they would be doing what they could to acquire wild foods but generally it was more about cheapness and how, what's the cheapest thing they could get at a grocery store that was prepared so that they didn't really encourage passing down any traditions as far as food preservation yeah it's not done anymore I meaning that i think it was probably the last generation where this was done mm-hmm. i think this was done too because i was very interested in it right. so i think my grandma kind of like you know took upon herself to actually teach me some of the stuff yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, were your parents interested? Like, did they? Huh? No. no. Yeah. So I think it was, you know, I think my grandma was probably like the last generation to really kind of like pass on that, that knowledge. And they still had the knowledge because they went to World War II. And I remember my grandpa used to raise rabbit in the attic in the city uh, for, for food. And mm-hmm. and then he was also forage for, the, for wild food for himself and also for the rabbits. Right. So, you know, eating wild food was 
you know, a very good survival skill during those days, frankly. That's interesting. As another guest just last week talked about the same thing, they're raising rabbits near me uh, because we don't live in an agricultural zone and they can walk into the forest and forage for food for those rabbits. Uh, Whereas chickens are impractical. Like we, we just can't grow grains and seeds, the things that they, they need more of. So that's interesting. Makes sense. So you came to North America, and then um, did you so, immediately? So I was a graphic artist at the time. So when I was a kid, I really wanted to do what I'm doing right now. <laughs> but the problem is my grandma had the limited knowledge, like the usual 40 or 50 plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, she didn't know about food preservation that much, to be honest. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the basic was on like canning, you know, pressure canning and stuff, and they didn't do a good job. <laughs> remember, you know, they were water boiling green beans which is really a low acid you know so you know the only reason i skip botulism is because if you boil something for 10 minutes you remove the toxins Mm -hmm. and you know all the canning was done for cooking so i guess that's why i never got botulism but they didn't know what they were doing either (laughs) (laughs) right well my Uh, first exposure to to canning meat was down in newfoundland in my early 20s um we shot moose uh, down there and all the locals they just canned the meat that they didn't have pressure canners and i didn't hear of any bad stories but if that's uh, risky now that i know a lot more but yeah yeah so and i live on the goat farm over here so i have access to goat meat so i'm I'm actually canning my own meat okay and then this afternoon i'm gonna be canning uh i'll show you I'm canning uh, wild mushrooms. I just collected those yesterday. Wow. These are honey mushrooms. Yes, right. Wow. So I'm going to be canning those this afternoon. I have a lot more, like the fridge for like 10 pounds. Uh, but anyway, so I really wanted to do what I was doing as a kid, but there was no book on the subject, no school, nobody else who could teach me. Mm-hmm. So I ended up doing my next love, which is really graphic design and being, being an artist. So I went to Academy of Fine Art, and I became a graphic artist for uh, yeah for 25 years. Wow. I went back to uh, wild food in 1999 because we had Y2K coming up. <laughs> and at the time, I was a programmer. I was actually doing virtual reality at the time. Wow. I'm one of the first guys to do virtual reality on the internet. It was so funny. Wow. So anyway, uh, and I decided to do some survival class. And I went to see a gentleman locally called Christopher Nargis. And uh, I remember the first class was like an epiphany. I go like, wow, I want to do that with my life. Hmm. So I spent several years doing probably 400 classes with anybody who could teach me. Wow. Native people, botanists, survivalists. Uh, sometimes I would go to ethnic store and say, stay close to the olives until the Italian grandma would show up and say, please take me home. <laughs> you know? Where was this? You were in California then? California at the time, okay. yeah. California. And uh, yeah, so 400 classes. Uh, and uh, and then one time I decided to uh, to do an experiment and spend the whole year surviving on wild food. Wow. And it was very difficult. It was, you know, there was a mistake I've done. You know, it was stop and go, we start, you know, try different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really realized that uh, food preservation was really the key for survival. Mm-hmm. Meaning that without food preservation, mostly in California, you know, by time the time you come to July and August, everything turns into a desert. 
Right. Yeah, true. That's something to think about because everybody in the north, we just think of summers, right. you know, bountiful and then winter is what we're preserving for. And here we don't have the problem with winter, mm-hmm. but we have the problem with everything turning into a desert, right. you know, right. which we, it's an illusion too. And I didn't know enough at the time, but, you know, it looks like a desert, but this is all, like most of it is edible grains and seeds. Mm, very true. The next book I'm, I'm working on right now. Is okay. Edible. 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 Oh, great. Um, And then, so I started to really study traditional food preservation technique. I I did the Master Food Preserver program at the University of California, Mm -hmm. uh, just to learn about food safety. Uh, It's a great program. I mean, you learn about food safety, but they don't teach you anything about wild food. They actually say you should not use wild food. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Right. Uh, But I started applying that to wild food, and I started to do my... uh, you know, my own beer, my own wine. You know, here's a good example. You know, I went back in time. And, and I mean, you know, you have the book. Uh, I'm not telling people to buy the book. Or this is one is from the the book. You can see it's very dirty because I really use it. Too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Wildcrafting Brewer, you know, then I have another one called Wildcrafted Fermentation. And then the next one is Wildcrafted Vinegar. And then there is a fourth one, but the fourth one was the first one was kind of a mix of all kind of different stuff. And Vinegar what I like about those books is really uh, about forging not only food, but also forging yeast and bacteria, if right. you think about it. You know, so, uh, and here's a good example. This is a uh, mugwort beer. So mugwort is a plant that we find in California, and you find that everywhere in the world, there is all kind of different kind of mugwort. Mm-hmm. It was an herb that the Viking would have used uh, it's our hops. Mm. So okay. hops, hops showed up in the year 900. Before that, people were using all kinds of crazy bitter plants for making beer that will be, you know, for different purposes sometimes. Some beer can make you drunk and happy. Some drink, some beer can be medicinal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can add some barks and, and uh, you know, different medicinal plants. You know, the church used to call that witch booze at the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, you can also make uh, a beer for a religious purpose, psychotropic, by mixing, mixing wild mushrooms, uh, like magic mushrooms and datura, and, you know, which is um, what some of the Viking will have done for the berserker, for example. Oh, right. You know, when they cannot feel any pain or whatever. But yeah. I do it for culinary use. So, you know, this is a good example. I do classes which are more related to wild food. So I always have my mugwort and lemon beer, you know, during the classes. But different use, this one is elderberry wine Mm. uh, that I'm doing too. And then locally in the mountains, we also have feral apple. So I can do some cider too. So I probably always have like 10 different ferments going with different liquid. And I use local wild yeast. And then, you know, if you know to make alcohol, well, guess what? You can also turn them into vinegar. So once you have vinegar, this is a good example of a vinegar that I'm making right now. You can see all the matter right there. Mm-hmm. So elderberry wine vinegar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you know to make vinegar, then you can start preserving your wild food. Right, um, okay. We have a shitload of, uh, of uh, olives. So those are olives that are preserved in my own vinegar, for example. Wow. Right. So I can collect like 20 to 30 pounds of olive every year if, I'm to, if I want to. 
Oh, it's just just locally, like just yeah. wild foraging, basically. Just outside of Los Angeles. Wow. You know, I'm like an hour away from Los Angeles in the mountain right now. But, okay. Uh, but this will be a wild burdock uh, roots that are pickled in vinegar, too. Mm -hmm. I collect black mustard seeds that are super invasive in California. Right. You can make your own Dijon mustard right there. Wow. So I have like, you know, I mean, I have two fridges that are really full and, and the pantry that is growing and growing right now. Uh, but I also like to do lacto-fermentation because lacto-fermentation, you're using the bacteria that exist also in the wild. There's nothing to do. <laughs> uh, you know, I do all the different. This is what wild radish pod kimchi, if I can open it. We have a lot of wild radish, you know, and there you go. Wow. It will like a whole year easily in the fridge. Okay. Uh, I can even leave it outside. Uh, this one is some uh, black mustard kimchi. Well, leave it outside in, in any temperature. Is that what you're suggesting? Lacto fermentation is really a cold climate, um, cold okay. climate uh, food preservation technique. Okay. But living in California, in the mountain, I can actually leave it outside as long as it is not freezing. Hmm. It's, it still needs to stay low, like in the 20 degrees. Sorry, let me. Be precise. <laughs> it's like calculating volts. Like, you know, you, you're looking for approximately like between 30, 32 and 40 degrees. Okay. So a lot, of, it's a lot of cold cellars up in our area, my cold cellar should be in, at that, around that temperature. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we don't have that here in California. There is no cellar in California. I okay. mean, very, very rarely. So hmm. and it doesn't matter because during the summer it will be too hot anyway, even, even in the cellar. So our solution on my side is I have to use the fridge, okay. you know, and if I live in the mountain here, I can leave them outside if I'm aware of the weather, make sure it's not freezing that night. You know? Yeah. What temperature, like what's the maximum temperature then if you're leaving them outside? You're, you're looking at like 40. You don't want to go too much above that. Okay. And the fermentation start to be way more active. Yeah. Okay, and then it can, I mean, would spoil at some point. Well, it doesn't really spoil. It's just it becomes, you know, the, the technique that you use is when you do like to fermentation here, for example, I have a, a sauerkraut, like a regular sauerkraut, is you ferment it at room temperature for like a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And when you get no more fermentation gas, then you sit in the fridge and it's going to be good to go for a whole year or more. Mm -hmm. Over time, it becomes a little bit more mushy, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. In terms of food preservation, it will keep. If you were to leave it at room temperature all the time, it just becomes overwhelmingly sour. Okay. And mushy a little bit. So it's it's not a question of food safety, it's more a question of texture and taste. Okay. That's a really important point because I mean again, from a practicality standpoint, food I mean, these are fruit food preservation methods that are you know, timeless, likely. Right. For one thing, but not only does it make food store, but also increases the palatability, not just the palatability, the, the uh, medicinal and the uh, health benefits. Like my my wife, for example, she can't eat beets, um, cabbage, and a number of things um, unfermented. But once they're fermented, right. I, mean, she, I mean, it's it's a superfood for her, and she, she loves it. And that's the way we got into fermentation is that – and I, I get to the, I'm at the point now where if I, you know, don't have fermented food in a day, I feel like there's something really missing from my diet. Yeah, yeah, totally. I usually, you know, I, 
Uh, definitely. I mean, a lot of what I do is for my classes. Uh, my my diet is pretty regular. Like I, I like to eat organic food. Mm-hmm. I have a small garden, uh, but I I mean I will go to the store, but I keep my my diet is very simple. And I would say wild food is anywhere between ten to forty percent of my diet, mm-hmm. depending on the time of the year. So during the the winter it goes down to ten, during ten percent. And I, one of the reasons, by the way, is because I do a lot of classes, so all this stuff is valuable for me. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's it's really not for me, it's for other people. Right, yeah. I mean, I could go ahead and, and just go full-time and, and, and survive mm-hmm. on what food. It's totally doable at this point. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would like to put on a log-building course so that I can have my students build my next log cabin. I mean, I mean, right now, I mean, I, it's very soon I'm going you know, in a couple of weeks, I'm, be, I'm going to be collecting acorn. Mm. Technically, once you have acorn, everything else becomes a bonus. You know, acorn can be a stable diet. Right. You know, to start with, you have enough food, you, you have enough fat in it, you have enough protein. You know, it's. And you're, uh, you have, um, your oaks are likely white oaks, I would imagine. We have probably like eight or nine different types of oaks in California. We yeah. Have oaks, black oaks, white oaks. Shrub oaks, I mean, all kinds of different oaks yeah. with different size of acorn and different level of bitterness. Mm-hmm. I'm going for the white oak, they are the biggest acorn and they don't, they're really not bitter, so they're easy to process. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, interestingly enough, I can take those acorn and then I can ferment them and I can make a vegan cheese with them. No, you're kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, it's amazing the stuff you can do. So you can go from survival to actually, you know, really go my food. Yeah. You know, those yeah and that's the uh i'm trying to um like up here where i am it's red oaks only i don't i've i've maybe seen a few white oaks south well i have south of here but there's no uh, it's all bitter red oaks here but it still was a, a staple for the indigenous people but also for wildlife like like right now um acorns are dropped well acorns have started dropping this year in august and right. the deer and the bear and the turkeys, they're only eating that almost. Like they're like right. if you want to find game, then that's where you go. Um, but the people for sure, we just had different ways that we had to have to preserve it here or to prepare it, not preserve it, but uh, prepare right. it to get the tannins out. Um but you, you have to leash them for sure. You know, there's mm-hmm. two there's like two different methods and you, you can leash them by boiling them, uh, or you can also leash them by using cold water, mm-hmm. right? Ghost technique actually working. So when you you said you tried to live off the land for a year, right? Um, how did that go? And like, what were you missing? And like, I, I assume you, you mentioned goats. I assume you're carnivorous as well. You're an omnivore, right? Right. So um, uh, like, originally, I, you know, originally, simply when I started in 2000, I think I did that experiment around 2006. I kind of didn't know what I'm doing in the sense that, you know, uh, I just went with plants. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, after two weeks, I was absolutely completely starving. We're like, oh, there's something wrong with it. <laughs> right. but, and, and I was not living in, in the mountain in this mm-hmm. location, you know, on a goat farm. But I was, I was still living in a, in a mountain on a private land. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started to, you know, I quickly realized I had, you know, I had to do some hunting, so I started hunting some rabbits and quails, mm-hmm. and also I started fishing. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just absolutely impossible to survive at the time because I also didn't know about seeds and grains, which are readily available. 
right. which is the wish that I have now, but I don't have them. So mm-hmm. seeds, are, seeds are really an incredible uh, source of fat too, by the way. Mm-hmm. True. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and an acorn too, which is also another source like nuts, you know. So I, I started, you know, so I, I started basically um, very fast immediately recognized that you could not just live on plants. And, and interestingly enough, some local survivalists in California we're always advertising that you know you can survive by just knowing which green plant you can, mm-hmm. you can but the reality is you know very far from it you're gonna be starving so fast well that, so the, you know what i think part of i think part of um your, what you're bringing i think to the world is well a number of things one that you can preserve these foods traditionally but also uh the more shows that seem to pop up or experts to talk that are talking about wild foods um, show up on YouTube or wherever that you quickly understand that basically they're talking about a garnish <laughs> because like in even wild food cookbooks, I mean, you know, you can eat this green, but then here's all the other things you're going to add to it. It's like a, it's like foraging for berries, for example, how many people right. actually do something with that berry other than, you know, double it, the weight and sugar added to it and and uh, you know even making a pie or something what but there's so many wild food experts that, that really they're just talking about supplemental um, garnishes on, on a meal of calories and if you, unless you get into those seeds nuts and and in many locales meat and fish um, it's virtually impossible yeah I, I, I can well yes and no i mean the more it's really a question of knowledge at this point I think I will do pretty well. And a good example will be like, you know, look at those olives. I, you know, if I collect 20 pounds, that's a lot of fat right there. That's a mm-hmm. lot of, that's a lot of oil, you know? So mm-hmm. it's really a question to diversify in my opinion. Like if you, if you look at it from a survival perspective and I'm, I'm just so you know, I mean, I'm not a survivalist by far. I'm, I'm really, I like to explore, um, you know, wild food and the, the possibilities and, and, and I like to explore food preservation technique. But I never really looking at it from a survival perspective because I don't have to right now. No, you know? that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not even a prepper, to be honest. I, mean, I just do it for the love of doing it <laughs> because I'm really fascinated by what I'm really fascinated is, you know, we're surrounded by food and we, this is knowledge that is forgotten. I can't imagine. I like I, I drive down the road and I just look in the ditches and I see the things that were passing. But I also look at these little vacant spaces that aren't being utilized for anything or not being um, harvested. And it's it's like people have no idea that you know, they're on their way to the grocery store. Yeah. And I mean, you look at Los Angeles, Los Angeles is paradise for wild food. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, you know, people think really like a big city like Los Angeles. Well, you have to go on the on, on the side. Mm-hmm. But for example, you look at the the hills around Los Angeles in in springtime; they're all completely yellow. From I think we did approximately twelve different types of mustard. Wow! That are growing there. Every single one, not every single one, but also like more than half of them are actually crops in different countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here in America, they're gonna look at it and go, "Oh, it's a nasty invasive plant." You know, let's get rid of it. And the the perspective is you're going to do two things. You are going to do uh, either habitat restoration, that means you show up and you're taking all those plants and throw them away, mm-hmm. or you're going to be using chemicals uh, like, mm-hmm. you know, Roundup and stuff like that to actually kill the plant, right. which, you know, introduce some toxin to the environment. 
But either way, it's really, you know, some people in, in you know, I teach in a, in a local college and they, they look at food waste. And I tell them, I tell the kids, like, kids don't realize that, but you, you're surrounded by hundreds of thousands of tons of food that nobody's touching because it's quote unquote invasive and non native, and those are weeds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but the real food waste is not, you know, is probably not using those resources. Well, I've done, I've been guilty of it myself. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, lambs quarters like uh, for right. like like basically we uh survived on um quinoa or what we call quinoa now in the past and we've gotten rid of that plant out of our diets and we literally pull it out of our gardens to plant something else in, in its right. place that's <laughs> like education is uh, you know and uh and it's not for everybody too you know sometimes you know, as you know, when you're on social media and you have a decent amount of follower, whatever you say, you always get shit sometimes, you know, and sometimes, you know, you get, I get people going like, oh, you're stealing from nature, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, really? Like, you know, people have lost this connection, you know, and I'm really looking at my interaction with nature in a way that I can actually be positive for the environment, not sustainable, but beneficial. Oh, so absolutely. I, I tend to concentrate mostly on my side on, on non-native and invasive plants for, for my cuisine. Mm-hmm. And if I use native plant, I usually plant more than what I would take. That's kind of like my philosophy on it. You know? Okay, yeah. But people don't realize that if you take a look at regular farming, you know, what is regular farming is you're going to go into an area, you're going to take all the native plants and throw them away. You're gonna disturb the local fauna, flora, and then you're gonna you're gonna plant plants that are non-natives, but those are not invasive because it's called agriculture. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, and I'm not like an extremist anyway, but I just think they, you know, it, it's really. I mean, the whole idea of living off the land is really getting lost for most people, and 99.9999 percent of the population has zero interest in foraging. You know, they, they just want to go to work. And then, you know, when they go to work, they just want to go to the store. They don't want to go somewhere to actually, you know, start collecting their own food for sure. You know? Well, I don't think, yeah. And the, and the fortunate or unfortunate thing is they're not listening to us because <laughs> they're not interested enough to listen to us. Yeah. I mean, I talked to, the, I did a class with Santa Monica College two weeks ago. So you, you're talking like a very, very educated kid. Mm-hmm. And I asked a question. I'm like, okay. Raise the hand if someone knows how to preserve food. Hmm. One person raised their hand for the whole class. A wow. class of 36 people. One person say, and she was Korean, she goes, I cannot make kimchi. Hmm. Everybody else, you know, young educated kids, they don't know. They're completely slave to the system. If the system falls, yeah. have no idea on what to do. They will not know how to survive. They don't know how to preserve food. They don't know how to grow food. They don't even know where to find food. You what know, is food? Yeah. What is, yeah, yeah. What beyond the things that they see in the grocery store is food. Um, I, I don't know. I see a couple of things happening. I see this divergence and I, and to talk about uh, like needing the, the requirement survival, that's a matter of perspective, I guess, because it, to me, escaping the modern system that's or in an urbanization that's taking place right now, to me, that's kind of, I'm in survival mode. I'm treating this like an apocalypse and I'm choosing to go down the traditional path rather than the modern path. Because I, I do see this divergence where there's a virtual world and a, and a real world. And 
I think people are starting to wake up and realize they need to make that decision, which is why you see this um, mass migration to the country that we've had since 2020, March of 2020, roughly. And people are discovering, okay, now I'm here and what do I do? How do I acquire food and, and how do I build community and how do I store food and how much food do I go through? Like the, the, the amount of, I've started um, documenting the number of calories that I've been able to harvest. And when I say harvest, I'm talking about growing it and raising and, and uh, foraging and hunting and fishing basically. Right. And it, it's a lot of food, like a million calories for me alone. And then I've got a family of four. Right. So, so that takes the diversity that you're talking about. It takes a lot of knowledge and the knowledge is not there locally. It's very, no. very no. difficult. And the, and then the storage and the, the preservation and the storage and, and even the cooking that unlock nutrients. Um, and I'm just discovering this myself, the proper way to prepare potatoes or corn, you know, that the, you have to lime the corn let to right. unlock the nutrients. These are things that are completely lost. And what right. you're doing with the fermentation and the, and the other food preservation techniques is, uh, is showing people how to utilize those unknown ingredients, but also how to unlock the health benefits of it. And that, to right. me, that's like getting off the healthcare system to me is one of the is one of my goals. And I think um, we in Canada, people think we have free healthcare up here, but it's, it's not good healthcare. Anything for free is typically not <laughs> going to be the best. And we've discovered that you better take it into our own hands and, and at least um, shore up our own health. So we don't have to rely on the system as much. No, I believe you. You know, my, my strategy for survival was very simple. I know how to make beer. <laughs> So I, I know when the end of the world comes, I'm going to have people protecting me. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Surrounded by people with rifles and you know, go like protect the Belgian. He knows how to make wild beer from plants in the forest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so you're going to need but, a lot of it. <laughs> oh, I need a lot. The only thing I will need to find is sugar, and that's pretty much you know. Yeah. It's you know, that's we. So we have, and like my, my sugar source up here is maple sugar and, um, and substituting ingredients like that's, I mean, we, we struggle going through your books cause it, it can be complex, but once you get used to the, the procedures, it's, um, you know, they are transferable to some degree. So, uh, ingredients are different all around the country, but it's, if you start to learn and understand the methods, then you can apply those in your region. Um, I tell you, I, actually, I don't know if you realize that, but like, for example, all the latest book that I did, including the white-crafted fermentation, 90% of the plant use uh, are non-native and invasive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that yeah. means they're applicable to where you are. But then once you know the method, then you can apply that to your local native plant if you wanted to. You know, you know, lamb squatter, for example, is not really, there's only one that's native to the U.S., but the one that you find is actually coming from Europe. Right, yeah. You know, so people don't realize that, like, the biggest amount of wild food in California is definitely non-native and, and, and all invasive plants. Well, Which, I had um, yesterday stepped out of the cabin and a, and a flock of turkeys walked past, and, and they're basically invasive in this area. They wouldn't exist in my area without the road systems that they've been able to walk up the ditches and I have a groundhog problem in my garden as well and they're again they're not native to this area but what people don't realize is that the 
degraded areas, the disturbed areas are where the most food grows. And it's where the most wildlife actually um, lives or, or feeds as well because of that diversity. Yes, so it's ironic that you, the more wild the place that you get into, the, the, the more spread out that food is. And yeah. How difficult it is. And it's so interesting because I think, you know, there is different, you know, different strategy that people have for survival. You know, on my side, you know, I've, the team that we have on, where I live, where we have the growth farm, we have a very interesting team. You know, we all have different skills and stuff like that. And for whatever reason, we ended up meeting, but, you know, with, you know, COVID happening and, and you know, events that's happening right now, which... This world, I mean, the last three years have been going down and down and down and down, you know, so we start also thinking like we need to get ready more, you know, Yeah, we are, you know, we are, you know, we all have different skills. So we have like sheep, goats, chicken. I mean, we have, it's a farm, you know, mm -hmm. my daughter is a true prepper. My daughter, she's, she bought some land in Idaho two years ago. And I think she's got enough food for like four years at this point for like three or four people. And I'm, and I'm sure the number one comment she gets from people who discover that is that I know where I'm going to go when the apocalypse hits, because that's that's yeah. The, yeah, you do. But but that and to me, we're just like, what? Well, maybe you should get prepared yourself so that you're not just a burden, right? Like I, it's I call it my self reliance, but my self reliance is yeah. it's more selfish sounding than it actually is. It's being prepared, uh, myself yeah. and my family. But we also then are a bit of a safe haven or. a resource for other people so i don't philosophy a little bit and, and that's why maybe i'm not a survivalist because i i i mean i am a little bit of a survivalist but you know if, if a situation i always thought for me that survival is not a uh, lonely wolf mm -hmm. uh, approach i think so true survival is definitely a community setting or, com or family can be a community for example mm -hmm. But having skilled people around you uh, is, is super important. It's kind of like what we're trying to do in this location uh, is having people who have different skills which are compatible with what we do. So here I'm very valuable for sure because of all the wild food knowledge that I have, but also because I can do all this food preservation technique. Like I think there's a big enough movement. And I'm not sure if you're seeing that in your classes um, or like you're kind of more connected with sort of the survival um, and uh, wild skills, I guess, uh, educational part of it than I am. So I would imagine you're seeing an uptick. Uh, would that be true? Not really. Almost mm -hmm. right. uh, I'm not. Um, my public is very different. My public in Los Angeles are more people who are interested in, in unusual food. Mm, right, yeah. And also uh, people, a lot of people that... Uh, like to go hiking and they realize that when they go hiking they're actually surrounded by plants and they don't know what it is anymore mm -hmm. so i don't it's really not a survival crowd it's interesting it's more like uh, educational mm -hmm. or foodies yeah uh, right okay different flavor uh no there's room for, for, there's, room for there's room for everyone of course but that unfortunately i guess you could say unfortunately but they're the ones that are financing um our lives which is right. well it's like the same it's like when a new product comes out and only the wealthy can afford it and when they start buying it in large enough numbers that it makes it an affordable product for the masses to take up so right. i guess that's sort of the same concept 
Well, my survival strategy, because I'm really doing that, doing that full time with my life. You know, my survival strategy has, has been to really set up different uh, sort, of, different type of uh, income. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of my income is definitely giving classes uh, in Los Angeles in nature and taking people in nature and teaching them plants and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I also make money teaching a traditional food preservation technique. This is mm-hmm. a completely different public. This will be more into the survival. Okay. And I do also a webinar on the subject. So I teach life person and people come to me in the mountains to, to, to learn about canning and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also webinars. Webinars can be quite popular. Like I'm doing a webinar about making your own vinegar uh, this uh, Sunday. And yeah, I have a bunch of people showing up from 50%, by the way, come from uh, from uh, Europe and the Middle East. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. It so is it's, interesting. It's international. Uh, hmm. So do my own pottery. I know this is so interesting. I yeah. don't know if you saw that, but this is some good example of stuff that I create using local clay that I go forging. So I use local clay I find the mountain, and I do my own glazes with uh, rocks that I collect too. That's fascinating. So not only do I do the wild food, but I can actually create the utensil. Like this is a uh, vinegar making, uh, primitive vinegar making. Uh, mm-hmm. Art, yeah. you know so it's it's very artistic and i use you know survival method this is a ladle for tasting and you can see that the ladle is also using white clay but the glue is made from uh, pine sap glue for example it looks I mean, like uh looks like electrical tape from here <laughs> i know you know if you look closely you'll see that there's yeah. like, like some yucca fibers and that's so it's very artistic i mean I, i'm an artist too so i have to be artistic to some degree I like the artistic um, uh, rustic uh, element, though. Like anybody, yeah. Look at these things. Like if you're not, if you're just listening to this on audio on a podcast platform, then go to the YouTube channel and just see what Pascal's showing here. And I'm also going to provide links to his uh, ceramics website as well, and and Instagram as well as his uh, wild foods um, media. Well, this is actually a brewing. This is for making wild beer. You know, uh, like short term. You will right. get wild beer in a week. Really? But in the week, you will get like four or five percent alcohol. It will get wow. you drunk. Wow. <clears throat> you know, and this is a pot that I use, and I created this little system so that, you know, um, fermentation gas can escape, but there is a little bow on the side that creates a, uh, it's kind of like a swing top. A okay. swing top, you know, but it's it's actually a little bow that put pressure on the top so oh. air cannot get in, but fermentation gas can escape. Oh, okay. I, I like to create like you know it, it's a whole i'm creating my own universe with wild food and my own pottery and my mm-hmm. own you know it, it, yeah it's, it's, it's <laughs> why not yeah well that's the thing and it's connection to the nature so you're putting your yeah. hands on every product and you're dealing with natural um, materials and it becomes you know it's just you hear woodworkers talking about the difference between a saw and a, and a basically splitting wood for example and you, how much more you need to pay attention to the material when you're not using mechanical means yeah. and by forming your own foods um, and pottery and, and implements um, from the land I mean that's just so immersive and people like you mentioned earlier about um, <clears throat> criticizing for um, for harvesting from the land from utilization uh, of course you're going to preserve you're going to want those places to be preserved you're, you're going to protect those wild mustard 
fields from being sprayed because you have an interest in it because you're consuming that. And, you know, that's the way it is when the more you get involved in something, the more you, you know, more extractive you become, the more preservationist you also become. So you end up protecting that land conserving. And this is why my philosophy is really when dealing with the world right now and, you know, it's, you cannot just be sustainable at this point because, frankly, you know, people are really fucking up this planet at this point. So yeah. sustainable is not good enough. You, you have to find a way to be beneficial to the environment. Yeah, and that's uh, what I try to do. And and it's really impossible to educate somebody with a closed mind. But when I'm harvesting timbers, for example, for my woodworking or harvesting food from that land, it looks only extractive from the from the outside, but they don't see the number of trees that I'm planting or the the uh, right. trees that I'm cutting down because it's actually benefiting the tree next to it or the plant um, ecosystem next to it. Right. Um, so, it, but again, you're very aware of that because I'm looking at yeah, my, my the rest of my life, but also the people following me. What uh, what am I leaving them? So right. it um, you know it's it's you can live with the land, and of course we all have some kind of impact, but you can minimize that impact or leave things better than you found it, which is actually more likely and more true if you pay attention because people before us and people around us have degraded things so badly that there's lots of opportunity for restoration. The one thing that I found fascinating, by the way, speaking of wild food, uh, is recently working on this book. I mean, I've been working on it for a few years, but uh, the wild seeds and grains, uh, how this knowledge is, has been completely, completely lost. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating to me, and mostly because I deal with invasive plants, so I'm actually dealing with the food of my ancestor because most of them come from Europe. Right. You know, but we have wild oats, we have wild barley, you know, all these things that people look at it as weeds. And, you know, originally, I, when I started looking at this book, I was going, this is impossible because I realized there are actually thousands of seeds and grains that are edible. Hmm. You know, and locally, so far in California, I found up to 200 edible seeds and grains. Wow. Wow. If you go to the store, you know, people think they have the choice, by the way. It's so funny. People think they always have a choice. Like, you go to the store, you're going to find, like, five or six type of potatoes. How many potatoes exist in the world? Like yeah. How many? People have no idea. I tell that to my class. If I recall, it's either 4,000 or 10,000 types of different potatoes. Right. But you only get six or seven. Do you see what I mean? So people think they have a choice. Yeah. You're talking about seeds and grains. You're probably going to have, like, maybe 12 different grains. Mm -hmm. And then you have maybe uh, 10 different seeds, like sesame seeds and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. you know? But the reality is I can collect 200 edible seeds and grains locally in, in, here in California, and none of them is available at the store. Wow. So, you know, and, and we're going through a probably a brief period where, and it's not incorrect, but uh, the way it's done, but seed oils are being vilified and, right. uh, and, and low-carb diet, of course. So... Um, there's natural progression and thought that, okay, that means all seeds are bad for you. So we shouldn't eat those things. And there's some argument that seeds are meant to not be digestible so that they're, uh, so that they can sprout and yeah, create the next generation. Well, you need to know what to, what you're doing. So you need, you can do several things. You, this is why usually you soak seeds. Mm -hmm. Soaking is actually remove the chemical compound that's around the seeds that, you know, can be what we call anti-nutrient. Mm -hmm. you know uh fermentation i use a lot of seeds and grains in my ferments oh, yeah like, good example 
of uh, wild wild onion uh, ferment with curry. And there's, there's probably like 20 different seeds and grains inside that little thing right yeah. there. <laughs> you know, so fermentation is actually an incredible way to use um, to use wild seeds and grain. Uh, you can also uh, do, uh, of course, sprouting. People don't think about that. Like mm -hmm. I collect a bunch of mustard seeds. I can collect six cups, six cups of mustard seeds in one hour. Wow. And this is my invasive mustard. Uh, the, the flavor of the seeds tastes like hazelnuts. Wow. Really nice flavor. Huh. Uh, and then you can spread them. It makes a fantastic little spread that tastes like broccoli. When, you know, right. And then you can, you can go further and, you know, get a little bit of soil. I'm going to do like a lot of experiment this winter on trying to leave as much as possible from the sprouts and the macro green of all the seeds I've actually collected. So you go yeah. ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I'm going to blow your mind on one thing. Let me show you. Interesting. That was fascinating to me. One of the most invasive plants that you have in California is something that people call foxtail. And it's the one that gets stuck in your dog's nose mm. or dog's paws or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm always fascinated because you know the one the, the name for the plant is called Great Brome, B-R-O-M-E. Mm -hmm. uh, our gut, uh, gut, uh, I forgot the name. So basically, the seed, the, the grain is so hard that it's actually dangerous for animals like cows oh, yeah. because they can actually pierce their own intestine and stomach because it's really super hard. Okay. But we, are, we have, have thousands of acres of this invasive, quote unquote, you know, plant, mm -hmm. which has no use. Nobody, you know, everybody hates it or whatever. And I did some research on it, and I found out that there actually there was one mention of the internet in French on top of it from an archaeology book that those grains were collected by hunter-gatherer in Europe, and they found caches in pots hmm. with different edible grains and seeds mm -hmm. uh, in Europe, and also in England and in France, and they contain also this uh, this grain. Mm -hmm. And I really looked into it because I'm like, this is, it looks completely flat, you know, like, I, you know, I, I became fascinated, like, how can we use it? And and it was actually the exact same time for cooking wheat. It's 50 minutes. Wow. We end up with the most beautiful, beautiful red rice. Right Holy there. smokes, yeah. I know. So huh. the, the issue is how do we, you know. My main problem when I deal with white grains and seeds is uh, all the method of processing them and extracting them are lost, mm. mostly from Europe, uh, because there is nothing left. You know, uh, when you deal with native grain, you can still have a little bit of uh, you know, knowledge, and there is still some remnant of you yeah. know documentation on how you know people here were doing it or are still doing it. But when you're talking about grain from Europe, you're talking prehistoric grain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those grains, you know, if you take a look at agriculture, agriculture was never set up in the sense of making sure you stay healthy. It was the biggest grain, the easiest to grow, so sure. you can make the most money and you can also, you know, feed the largest amount of people as fast as possible, mm -hmm. losing all the diversity in the process. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the incredible diversity that has been lost in terms of seeds and grains is unbelievable. You know, I so can, you, yeah. 
Do you, like, do you see, do you think there's value? Did you just eat that directly? Like, do you not need to sprout it or what is, I'm going to ask you two things, but. I'm, I'm in the middle of it. So one, uh, you have to understand, I'm not looking at it from a, green, from a, from a survival perspective only. Yeah. You know, if, you, if I look at it from a survival perspective only, some grains will not be valuable type of okay. thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, but my God, if I can collect uh, six cups or eight cups of seeds in one hour, that is that is not survival, it's abundance. Do you have any idea how many calories that would be? Six, like this, because this is this fascinates me. Like I said, I started counting calories and realizing okay, yeah. a million calories, that's a lot of food. And if, I, if I'm d diverse... Right. Then I need to, um, yeah. How much of each thing do I need to acquire and store and and right. use, using techniques like you're using here? Like I have a freezer that's somewhat unreliable because it's solar powered only. So right. I, I'm always aware that I could lose everything if I don't, um, um, right. in that case, can it or dehydrate it or uh, freeze dry it or yeah. smoke it. But uh, all these, yeah, sorry, go for it. No, all these other food items like. Um, yeah i i don't know like, like i said you look at these um other food experts in there and it's all just garnish essentially there's no calories there's some nutrients uh, some micronutrients but the calories aren't aren't there so there's no return on that um energy investment but if you're saying you can harvest six cups in an hour that's that is definitely a net um gain yeah i mean a good example that is super nutritious here let me see if i find it I love that you're completely surrounded by all these foods. Okay, so this is our native chia. Hmm. I mean, what's collected in one morning. This is like a whole, you know, mm -hmm. one, even one morning, meaning better probably like an hour, an hour and a half. Hmm. So probably hmm. close to two cups of chia seeds. Wow. Uh, you know, the, the property where we live in, we have so much wild chia. People don't even know what chia looks like. No. It's interesting. Um, we have native food. I mean, I, there is something called thistle sage locally, which is so abundant. And the, 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 those are big seeds related to chia, the gel too. Mm -hmm. uh, and today, survive on that. There is so much in the desert. I, and I, I, I'm talking the desert now. It's so, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, lamb squatter, those are lamb squatter seeds, still greens. Mm. Wow. So, them, you can use them as quinoa. Yeah. It's unbelievable the amount of stuff you can actually collect in terms of seeds and grains. But the problem is you don't always get the nutritional data because they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you can associate that with the regular one. You can go, well, wild barley, you kind of you're gonna assume it has at least sure. the same nutritional value than the regular barley. Right. Or it's, it's still an assumption, but you would, you know, from a, the USDA perspective, this is not food. Yeah, that's unfortunate because likely it's got a more complex nutrient uh, profile than the the domestic stuff, and it's not plumped up for market and for storage and for and for uh, shipping. That's correct. But trying to find the information yeah. uh, is is not possible because again, there is no money to be made with this, mm -hmm. and the food industry has no desire for you to go foraging because it's free food. <laughs> uh, I mean. If it, if you take a look at all the, uh, you know, to be controversial, you like you, if you look at all the old video about, you know, Roundup and Monsanto, it was always about spraying the dandelion, which is yeah. really a powerhouse. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
it's you know the, the industry has no the food industry has no interest whatsoever for you to learn about foraging and even food preservation no yeah. you're no they're right you're right <laughs> and the funny thing is the more you um <laughs> we seem to be all on the same page and there's a lot of things unsaid in these kind <laughs> of conversations especially publicly um, but this seems to be the more you know the the less you trust um mainstream and the more you, you try to connect with like-minded people and yeah. the more skills you yeah. try to acquire and the more resources you try to squirrel away so that you can be more resilient more self-reliant and um, I like I said I think there's a divergence there's a I think the tendency is for to take the path of least resistance for any any I mean it's right. a smart as I always say this is a survive, smart survival mechanism that all animals yeah. use and that's to take that path of least resistance. But once you, once you put some effort into it and your eyes are open, you, you know, there's a, um, there's a lot out there to learn. It's a passion. It's something you can really delve into for the rest of your life and, and be fulfilled. Right. And, um, and that, that and confidence. Yeah. what's that? And you can even make a living at it. You and know you can I mean? make, yeah, we're I mean, living in a day and age when we can make a living at, which is also nice. Like I don't, scorn modernity and i don't um take for granted the fact that uh, we're both making a living because of you know things like social media and the printing press in, in your case but um you know there's a place for both but i think the divergence is that you're gonna people are the majority of people are going to be lured by ease and by convenience and security and safety and yeah. and they're gonna um they're going to forfeit their freedom as a result and if, um, so these skills, these traditional skills and knowledge that um, you're presenting are, right. are very important. Maybe maybe they're very important for humanity. Who knows what we're going to do in this in these very, very unsettling times? Like maybe these are going to be skills that are actually necessary, not just a, not just a hobby or an interest for the culinary uh, field in yeah. California, for example. You, you can totally take those books and to take a look from a cleaner perspective, and you can totally look at them from a survival perspective. They yeah. both what's amazing, what's beautiful is that we you can do both, that you can actually survive and thrive and actually, you know, really enjoy your food. It's not uh, just because it came from the wild doesn't mean it's simple and, and bland and no, what I'm trying to, find, to tell people is, you know, and you're right, you know, I'm, and I'm not a chef, by the way. So, you know, sometimes people think I'm a chef when they look at my Instagram, but I'm really a food preserver. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but you can definitely, I mean, wild food is gourmet food. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's incredible flavor. If you know what to do is that you, you get the most incredible flavor that you cannot even buy at the store. You know, and we're not talking garnish, we're talking like hardcore wild food, you know, take those acorns and make a fermented cheese out of it, you blow people's mind. They go like, oh, what? Right, yeah. It's like cheese, but it's acorn, you know. Yeah. And it's nutritious and it's probiotic in the same time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that so, nutrition, I, I, for the health, for your own health, I think uh, what you're doing is, that alone is worthwhile. But right. the, um, the interest, the culinary interest and the, the satisfaction, like I don't know anybody who doesn't, talk proudly to everybody that they know they know when they supply one ingredient for themselves in their meal but if they supply all of the ingredients in their meal man they're they shout that from the rooftops you know it's, yeah. it's just a pat uh, just something that it resonates with i think all of us so to and for me to to grow my vegetables fruits and vegetables and harvest my fish and game and then to be able to add 
fermentation and preserves and alcohol, I think is what we'd like to go down next. My wife bought, bought a couple of copper stills so that she can start doing uh, <laughs> all kinds of different things. So doing some uh, essential oil extraction. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're just trying to figure out how to gather things in enough quantity to actually go through that process. <laughs> so it's, um, but it's fascinating. It's literally, like I said, a lifetime, the rest of our lives could be spent just um, delving into that alone. And, you know, and, and I've always been an artist and I, I for me, it's, I think it's super artistic. I, I, I love yeah. wild food. I love playing with it. And I think it's beautiful. And then doing the poetry in the same time. And then my survival strategy, because I, you know, to be honest, most of my life, I've not done make a lot of money and showing up as in America as the first generation. Mm -hmm. There is no background or, you know, it, yeah. you start from scratch. So my kids, my daughter bought some land. My my son bought a house, but personally, I've never, you know, having to have two kids to take care of, and I was a single dad for a long time. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. So one of my survival strategy was actually, like, well, I don't have any money to buy land. I don't have any money to do all this stuff, but I can, but I can build my own skill and become valuable to others. Exactly. So I have so many people inviting me right now. If she did the fan, they go like, please come here. Yes. Please come yeah. here. I have like a choice. So it's a different survival strategy. Like if you don't have everything, but you have the skill and the knowledge, you become very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Them. And you're low impact enough where if I, people think my only value probably at this point is building big things out of wood, which is I'm at 53. I'm not doing that till I'm 83. I don't think. Yeah, <laughs> I think maybe I'll get into doing what you're doing more. Yeah. So my daughter is like begging for, for me to go for, you know, yeah. with her. And I'm like, I don't know. The winter is so harsh. Like Northern <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beauty of humans is that we're so adaptable and you would thrive, yeah, I'm sure, there as well. We are, you know, and, 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 and you know, it, and it's funny for me to watch because I, I do know survivalists and people who are really into survival and preppers and stuff. And we, we all have different strategies to some degree. Yeah. you know on, yeah. on what to achieve you know and some may fail and some may work we'll never know until really the shit hit the fan you know on my side i'm definitely going for building skills and being part of a community yeah and, and of like-minded people so we actually take care of each other but also our skills are really interacting with each other and and you know yeah absolutely and the, and um part of value is creating value is maybe you're for young people listening to this, it's not that you're, you have all this knowledge and experience, but the effort, if you get up in the morning and you can't wait to do something um, for somebody or, or to further your own education. And uh, I mean, that's where you, that's where it starts. So make yourself valuable by being curious and by being a hard worker and conscientious and, and um, you'll grow and you'll find that community and, and uh, you know, you'll find a skill or a, uh, you know, a passion that you can pursue and it can be meaningful for life. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's really important to, to do that and don't sit back and just let other people take care of you and get involved. My, my, my take on it is so interesting when I talk to, to uh, when I teach in local college and stuff and I tell people like, people ask me like, you know, do you have any hobbies? It's like, no, I don't have hobbies. <laughs> because life. a hobby is like you keep telling me, you know, basically telling me I want to be unprofessional in something because right. that's probably something that you do on the side. If I do something, I want to be a professional at it. Yeah. So, and guess what? And I told the kids, I say, once you become a professional at it, 
well, suddenly, you, you know, if it is your passion, you're going to realize that you can actually make money with it. You yeah. can actually, you know, if you if you're good at it and 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 decide to really be a pro, you know. Uh, good example would be the pottery. I started pottery only a few years ago. Granted, I have a background in fine art, but and I'm self-taught. Mm-hmm. But I really went deep, 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 deep. I have a waiting list now for people wow. who buy the stuff. Wow. And I learned how to make my own glaze from rocks. They don't teach that in school. You know, I've learned how to recognize clay in the wild. I have learned, you know, it's, you know, you spend a lot of time doing it, but in the same time, it's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty much self-taught too on food preservation. There is no school on the subject. Mm-hmm. The Master Food Preserver is a very short program. Mm-hmm. But what at the time did they even teach you fermentation? The fermentation was not approved by the USDA. Wow. The wow. See, so I had to learn fermentation. I had to learn how to make tr- traditional beer by myself using plants. So it's a tremendous amount of research, you know, to do all this stuff. You know, but it's so rewarding and it's so much fun at the same time. And, and you know. Well, and because you're, you've done that and other people do that, they dive deep into a subject matter, then it makes life easier for the rest of us because we're not um we're, we can't spend all of our time learning all of these things ourselves the way you have or too broad right. my my experience and my lifestyle is too broad i have not become an expert at anything and i right. sometimes regret that but on the other hand i i don't know i, I find my well, life interesting I think you, are, but you don't know it i mean i was looking at your instagram you are actually an expert you just don't think of you as an expert but i think you are and this is why you have people following you and people are looking at your lifestyle. You're actually an expert in a very specific lifestyle. Well, <laughs> well, thank you for that. Well, I, you just... are. I mean, you're not, you're not, you're not looking at your lifestyle as a hobby. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, that's what you started saying, and I agree with that totally. That there's no, there's right. no line between work and and life um, when right. you're doing what you love to do. And I know it's cliche to say do love what you're doing, you'll never work a day in your life. But it's actually true. The lines are blurred. I, I if you were to sit me down and say how many days a week are you working where you film that thing and then edit and upload and manage that social media it's probably like 80 hours a week it's not something that anybody would ever say i'm willing to do that as a job 80 hours a week it's just the way it is and then you end up you can define success in many different ways and i i i look at myself as successful because i have a good family life more than anything right and and i'm living the life that i want to live and i'm trying to make as little we're trying to have a positive impact on the world and I'm enjoying it. Um, I'm not doing it for that reason because that would be too unselfish. And, but selfishly, I love what I'm doing and I'm able to share that. And I like, I like that we live in a time that I'm able to do that. And I'm the same way. Like I do, I don't define success by money. I define success by being able to make a living doing what I love. Mm-hmm. For me, it's such an incredible gift to really make, being able to, to make a living doing what I love is, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. incredible for me it's you know being able to do all my crazy experiment and finding more and spending time in the forest you know collecting mushroom and canning them this afternoon and it's just an incredible lifestyle yeah you know it's people dream of that people who have you know big retirement or whatever you know also whatever are looking at this lifestyle and go like this is incredible i'm like yeah i'm very lucky it's not about money you know for me yeah, you get to retire. Basically, you retired long ago because you're doing. I, I mean, I, my social security is like laughable. <laughs> 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 it's ridiculous. 
I always look at it like I'm willing to go to zero to to continue this life and to me like financially go to zero at it. It does. It wouldn't matter to me. And if the only reason, the only reason you're actually talking to me or I'm visible to anybody is because I need to make money to support a family. But other than that, uh, you would have a hard, hard press to find me out in the woods. Yeah, I mean, I'm by myself at this point. My kids are grown and stuff like that. So I'm kind of like gone at this point. Mm-hmm. It's way, way easier for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I'll get there too, but uh, in the meantime, I'm going to keep put, plugging away and I, I'm starting to enjoy it so much. Just interacting with all the people that I've met, even traveling to the people you meet that um, come up to me, to me and my wife and talk to us or to my daughter. Um, right. Yeah. That's so, so rewarding in itself. And this is just another, this podcast is just another way to do that as well. I spent a, a year and a half in the RV during the, in the RV traveling during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, and what's funny, it was such an interesting, you know, it, there was some up and down, there was some great times, some, you know, very depressing times sometime, you know, it, it was not like what you see on social media called, you know, van life or whatever, Right, right. you know, but it was so much fun to cry. I was collecting clay, I was collecting wild food, you know, traveling, giving classes, you know, using uh, Zoom and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So very different lifestyle than I'm used to. Um, mm-hmm. But I've learned so much, you know, and it was so funny because I twice in the RV camp, you know, sometimes I would be in the wilderness, sometimes I was in a camp, and twice I got recognized too. Like, are you Pascal? And I'm like, what? It's <laughs> great. I was like in Pennsylvania, and somebody comes, are you Pascal? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's I I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I get embarrassed still by that um, when people. Yeah, I'm the same music. way. Too, yeah, you know. yeah. Really? I just, yeah, you do it. You know, people are uptaking your information, but you don't know that's impacting them enough that they want to introduce themselves to you, right? And that's, I don't yeah. know, that's everybody, and everybody's interesting. If you sat down and talked to that person that came up to you, you'd find they're more interesting than you, right? <laughs> or than me. That's, yeah, that's yeah, just that's, the way life is. No, that's so funny. Mm-hmm. Well, I better uh, I better get going. I actually had another. I shouldn't have done this, especially with my technical inexpertise. But I have another guest coming on it <laughs> right now. Okay. Yeah. But this yeah. was fascinating. I'd like to have another talk again if we could, because I do want to talk more about your the nomadic lifestyle and then a few other things about your your books. Well, I'm not nomadic right now. Basically, no. that up for a little bit, and I I still don't know if I'm going to keep the RV or not. Yeah. You know, because I could sell the RV and maybe put a cabin on my daughter's property. Mm. So I'm trying to figuring out a little bit yeah. my life. I'm I'm going through like a late life crisis. <laughs> like, what's next? I don't know. Well, hopefully, you have another thirty years to figure that out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, where where can people find you? I, and again, I'll provide links below. But if anybody's just listening in, where's the um, I mean, what so, is... my website? This is where I list my uh, uh, classes. If you live in California, it's urbanoutdoorskills.com. Okay. Urban U R B E B A N outdoor, like being outdoor, and then skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to teach survival classes like 15 years ago, so I took that name. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, social media. That's probably like the best way, like Instagram, uh, under my name, Pascal, P-A-S-C-A-L, Bodar, B-A-U-D-A-R. And I, you know, my Instagram, I share a lot of recipes right there. I'm, like, I, I'm really into giving. I love giving. Mm-hmm. 
I share recipes and how to do things and how to make vinegars and how to make your own beer and stuff like that. And and I'm finally but got a new phone now and I'm going to start doing reels now. Oh, <laughs> I keep trying and I get fed up. <laughs> yeah, but you have to do it. It's so interesting. I know. Like it, it's not a choice anymore. And that's what I, I don't like about social media is sometimes it's just really pushing you to do things, you, you know, if you want to continue to have more, to reach more people, you don't have a choice sometimes. Yeah, same. I felt I feel the same. And it's, uh, yeah, you just kind of have to, I mean, you, it's, they're our boss, really, right? Like that, that's where we earn our money. Well, so. I mean, you, can, you can decide to disconnect at one point, but you have to be ready for that, I guess. Yeah, well, if you're making your living there, but you also have your books, which is nice. Um, everything else is going electronic these days. So you've got your four books yeah. and the fifth one that you're working on. Yeah, and that's, um, that's another source of income right there. So writing and book royalty is also like another source of income. I really don't make a lot of money, but just I make enough money to like do what I love. And that's what I ask. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, I think everybody should, in this day and age especially, I think that's a that's a life goal. That's a pursuit. I think that's yeah. uh, worthwhile is to find out what you love to do instead of pursuing money. It's things get more expensive and less. I think we're coming into some more re uh, restrictive times. So your choices, I think are not going to be as much, you know, as available as they were for even for our generation. So I think choosing something meaningful, I think is a better path. And um, I like that you've done that and I'm doing that. And yeah. hopefully we can inspire others to do that as well. I see a lot of young people coming to my class that are going through that, by the way, and that would be one of my public is people who I really want to to change something, like change their life. Mm -hmm. And it's, the younger generation is slightly fed up right now, I think, because yeah, I mean they see what's happening in the world and they're like, we we can do better than that, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, and the, and if, if people like yourself can give them the the information that they need, then that's uh, you know that's wonderful. Okay, sir. All right. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Pascal. Oui, oui, oui. Au revoir. <laughs> Bye.